Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Crohn's Fitness Food Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Gish, Crohn's warrior and IGA nephropathy warrior, and I'm dedicated to sharing the stories of those with IBD. Thank you so much for joining me today. Now let's get to it. Well, hi, everyone. So today I have a special guest for this episode. Joining me is America's trusted digestive nutrition expert, Tamara Duker-Froyman. She's been featured on Good Morning America, Inside Edition, CNN, and many other media outlets. She is a New York-based dietitian whose clinical practice focuses on the dietary management of digestive and metabolic diseases. She is also the author of The Bloated Belly Whisperer and has just released her second book, Regular, which addresses the many causes of and treatments for bowel irregularity, including a full chapter dedicated to Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Thank you so much for joining me, Tamara, and welcome to the show. Thanks, Stephanie. Happy to be here. Happy to have you. So normally when I get started on our podcast, I like to ask my guests about how their IBD journey got started. So why don't you share with me how your passion for gut health and digestive nutrition, where all that began? Sure. So dietetics is a second career for me. I kind of changed careers when I was about 30 years old from a corporate kind of job. Um, And I was just really interested in nutrition and food, nothing very specific. But about a year into my education or my my re-education, some professor put a slide up on a PowerPoint that was just this very rudimentary graph of the intestine. And it was sort of like this roadmap with little dots along the way around where all the different nutrients were absorbed. And just like this, it clicked for me, this idea that, you know, nutrition and gut health or gut disease are so linked, so one-to-one that if there's a problem in this area of the gut, it's going to affect, you know, nutrition in that way. And if there's a problem in that area, and just like that really intimate connection between food and nutrition and the GI tract, I just found it like really compelling and captivating. And very early on in my education, I really wanted to start specializing and learning more about digestive health, digestive disease, and and the interplay with food and nutrition. I love that. And it is so connected. I know a lot of us with IBD, we definitely notice the direct connection of, of food and nutrition and how we're, feel, how, how we're feeling and just that you know, diving into the whole world of the microbiome these days and how much research and information is coming out about how much that does affect our health is, it's incredible and it is interesting. So <laughs> so do you yourself, do you have family members or friends with IBD or do you have a personal relationship with IBS, IBD, gut health, bloating, <laughs> being regular, all of those fun things? Well, Stephanie, I'm a celiac disease girl myself, so that's my particular affliction. Um, thankfully, I do not have IBD, I say yet, because I, obviously with celiac disease, there is an autoimmune little streak in my family. My dad had type 1 diabetes, and so certainly not impossible, but you know, for now, no IBD and no IBS yet. Well, that's good. I don't wish it on anyone. <laughs> yeah, thank you. appreciate that. I'm guessing we'll talk about your book a little bit later, but I'm guessing since you have celiac, that maybe was the the trigger, the push for your first book of the bloated belly whisperer? You know, not really. And so the way that the first book came about was I was a pretty new junior dietitian. And, you know, I had, you know, studied in school, I had all my textbook knowledge, and I kind of show up for my first day of work, like expecting to to hear the types of things that I learned about in school, which mostly, frankly, was IBD. That's kind of what they teach you in nutrition school when it comes to gut health. They don't really teach you about IBS and and more functional GI issues. So (laughs) IBD is kind of what I did, like I was prepared for. And then patient after patient would come in complaining of bloating. And I'd be like, I've literally never heard the term bloating before. Like, I don't know what that means. Like, is that like a medical diagnosis? Is it really like a clinical term? And so I literally just had to start asking my patients like what they actually meant. And interestingly, not everybody meant the same thing when they used that word. And I realized that for some people, bloating was, you know, a feeling of fullness and discomfort. For some people, bloating was the visible distension of the belly. Some people, you know, were bloated with a lot of gas, but for some people it was burping gas. And for some people it was farting gas. And some people's bloating had no gas at all. And then I realized like bloating is not one thing and everyone is using it you know, interchangeably. And that's kind of was the genesis of my first book. That's interesting. I wouldn't have thought that. I mean, I guess, you know, we each have our own experiences. So when I think about bloating, I think surely everybody experiences it the same way. And that's such a 
silly thing for me to say, knowing how individual IBD is for everyone. So, <laughs> well, and it's funny because, like, a lot of physicians, if you tell them you're bloated, they're going to assume you mean acid reflux and they're going to put you on an antacid or like a pepsid or a, an omeprazole. And so, when we use the word bloating, we should not assume that the person we're talking to has the same understanding of that word. And as you can imagine, the way that you would treat, like, indigestion kind of bloating would be incredibly different than like bloating with IBD. And so, you know, the the devil's in the details. And so as I do in both my books, like I get really down and dirty into the details and very descriptive and, you know, no taboos, no holds barred, because if we don't really talk about what we're talking about, we can't figure out what it is we're dealing with and how we're going to fix it. I love that. And that's such a good takeaway, too, for us as patients to recognize that just because I say bloating or I think this is a common term that my doctor is going to immediately understand, they may not. So describe exactly what bloating is and, and take that to the next appointment, whether it's with, with a nutritionist or with a doctor. It's That's a good takeaway right there. Well, and not just bloating, Stephanie, also the terms diarrhea and constipation are not universally understood. So I'll have patients who say that they have diarrhea, but when I probe them on it, their stools are actually formed. And what they're describing is they're urgent or they're really frequent. Or when they say that I'm constipated and I really probe them on it, their stools aren't hard. It's just they have to strain a lot even to pass a soft stool. Or maybe they're constipated and they mean they go every single day, but it's just like it feels incomplete. Or as some people say constipated and they don't go for five or six days at a time. And so again, even the terms diarrhea and constipation do not mean the same thing for every person. And your doctor won't necessarily know what you're talking about unless you say, this is how often I go. This is what my stools look like. This is my experience in passing stool. And and understanding that common language will help your doctor or your dietitian or whoever you're working with figure out how to help you because they will have a better sense of what's going on when you are very specific. That's good. The details are important. And you mentioned mention your book being so detailed. We'll just kind of get into it a little bit right now. But um, but I read through, you know, especially in the chapter of IBD, because that obviously hits closest to home for me. But there are so there's so much information that you include in your book, Regular, your second book, that there are things that it took me years into my journey to finally understand and realize. And you laid out everything beautifully, just talking about diagnosis and families of medicine, uh, medications, I should say, and even even things like the the EEN, I forget exactly the the exclusive and terrible, and uh-huh. <laughs> you know, the all liquid diet, you know, those are things that I didn't, it took me years of digging around on Google and trying to find some of these different things. You even mentioned supplements like turmeric and just fighting that inflammation. And so a lot of great information in your book. And I really appreciated how detailed that it is. Well, thank you. I mean, the interesting thing about this book and that chapter in particular is I started writing this book. The book was written very piecemeal. I started writing it probably like four or five years ago, even before my first book published. But the IBD chapter was one of the last chapters I wrote. And honestly, I could not have written that chapter much sooner than I did because so much of the data is like hot off the press, really brand new. A lot of the research on fiber and IBD is so new. Like there's some really new research comparing, finally studying the specific carbohydrate diet and the Mediterranean diet and really quantifying who might benefit from it? What percentage of people might actually benefit? And is one better than the other? I mean, this is like hot off the press research that if I had tried to write this chapter three years ago, I would have had very little to say. And, you know, even between the time I wrote my first draft and then I got my corrected draft back, there were like two or three new IBD drugs that had been approved and launched that I had to then go back and add in. And so there's so much new research and developments in the in the world of treatment um, and lifestyle intervention for, for inflammatory bowel disease that, you know, it was like challenging. And I was like, we got to get this book published soon before like too much more happens. And like this book becomes obsolete because that chapter is just so fresh. Yeah. It probably won't be long until you're ready to write another book that (laughs) expands on even more of what we've learned over the next couple years to come. Well, Stephanie, let's uh, let's give me a little time, please. Thank you. <laughs> I'm good for now. <laughs> so, tell me, you've seen you see patients with all types of different digestive diseases, um, but thinking of IBD and your patients with Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, are there 
things that stand out to you as far as takeaways or commonalities that you see when you work with patients with IBD? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I think there's some patterns, I guess, that I see with IBD, right? Um, So the first is, you know, people just trying to like get through the day, right? And like do what they can do for symptom management and feeling, and sometimes them feeling or me seeing that so much of that can be at odds with what might be best for the long term, right? And so this kind of idea of like, what do I need to do to get through the day in the short term versus like what is the type of eating pattern that might support me best for like anti-inflammation and and supporting remission and, you know, using diet as an adjunctive therapy. You know, there's a lot of sort of like starving myself all day long because like I just don't want to eat anything because like I have to get through this meeting or this presentation or this travel or whatever I need to do and I'm afraid of provoking symptoms so I won't eat anything. Or I'll just eat like, you know, fiberless, bland, you know, stuff just to kind of get through the day, which – oh my gosh, like if I were worried about symptoms, like of course, like that would be exactly what I would do too. Um, And yet then what happens is at night, like eating a whole day's worth of food at one time, which then can make the morning worse or, you know, not eating the diverse type of plant foods and fibers, even in the gentle textures, you know, not necessarily like all the raw roughage, but in whatever gentle textures that might be tolerated and kind of shying away from fruits and vegetables because we're scared of them which in the long term now we're really learning is not necessarily the best for the microbiome. And and so this sort of this tension, this natural tension between how do I survive, how do I function with how do I optimize my gut health and my, you know, my microbiome, there can be a natural tension for people. And it's a tightrope that people have to walk and and helping people navigate that is is part of my work. Um, and it's my challenge and it's my joy and it's my job. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Tell me what someone would expect. So if someone is, because not everyone with uh, IBD, not not everyone usually thinks of going to a dietitian first. And I think doctors are getting better about recommending dietary, like dietitian services now, as opposed to maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, but they are starting to recommend that more. So tell me, what should a patient with IBD, because that's our community <laughs> we're talking to today. But what should someone expect when they begin their journey with a dietitian and they're embarking on managing medications and diet? What does that look like? Yeah. Look, I mean, I think it'll vary by dietitian, right? Like I know what my practice looks like. There's two other dietitians in my practice. So I know how we practice. I, you know, I don't know that I can speak for all others, but you know, in our practice, we are really trying to understand your goals and help you, you know, be the healthiest person that you can be, which might look different for everybody else, you know, for different people. And so, you know, there might be people who really just want to focus on symptom management that like they're not interested in like sort of like a whole on dietary overhaul. They're just like, I don't even know what to eat. I'm so confused about what to eat. Like, I just need to know what's safe for me to eat. Um, And I'm looking at like symptom management, nutritional adequacy. Like, how do I make sure you're meeting your basic protein, calorie, vitamin needs, whether that's from food, whether that's from some additional supplements, like just trying to like keep you functional and whole. And that might be your goal. And that's what you have the capacity mentally, physically, (laughs) emotionally for. And that's fine with me. I will help you work on that. Then there's sort of the opposite end of the spectrum. The people are like, I want to make a dramatic change. I want to overhaul my life. I want to devote like everything I can do with my diet to fight inflammation and support my medication. And I want to use diet as a healing tool. And maybe my goal is even to see if I can get off of my medication just by living like a perfectly clean, amazing anti-inflammatory diet life. And if that is your goal, then I will help you work on that and get you there to the degree that your body will tolerate it, right? Like, again, this idea that like the most anti-inflammatory diet that's like super diverse in fiber and plants may or may not be tolerable and physically feasible for everyone. And so finding what is the version of that diet that works best for you, that helps you meet your needs, that is nutritionally adequate. So I don't have a specific you know, agenda for you when you walk in. I want to figure out what your goals are. What is your capacity? You know, I have a lot of members, you know, a lot of patients with IBD who are ultra-Orthodox Jews, for example, and they have many, many children, many, many young children and significant household childcare responsibilities. Many of those patients realistically aren't going to be able to be cooking like separate anti-inflammatory meals for them and like the whole family. And so like what 
what is the role of diet that fits into your life, right? And so working with you and meeting you where you are and making you the best you that you can be at that moment is kind of what I am working on. And I don't have a specific diet. There's many versions of an anti-inflammatory diet. There's characteristics of an anti-inflammatory diet, foundational principles, but there are versions of it. Like there's a version of a specific carbohydrate diet that is anti-inflammatory. There's a version of a Mediterranean diet. There's a version, if you're South Asian, there's a version of a South Asian culturally vegetarian diet that is anti-inflammatory. And so wherever your dietary preferences, likes, dislikes, culture is, I will help you work on the anti-inflammatory version of that diet. I don't say, oh, here's my anti-inflammatory diet. Follow this boilerplate plan. It's it's really individualized and meeting a person where they are in all respects. I love that so much, especially because I know years of talking with other people with IBD that diet is so individual to each of us. And the things that work for me, my anti-inflammatory diet is most likely not going to be the same as someone else. And it took, if you go to the internet and you search for, you know, anti-inflammatory diet, just as you're saying, there's so many, and it can be so overwhelming as a patient to try and navigate food, especially if it's not something that you're necessarily passionate about. If you're just, you know, if that's not something you hold close and someone goes to the internet and there's just so much information that how do you navigate it? So I think that's such a huge benefit of being able to work with a dietitian who has all that knowledge, who has that passion, and can understand how to adapt a diet so that it works for someone. So I think that's, I love, I love that philosophy and that take that, that you have with your practice. Thank you. How often do you see patients when they start coming in? Uh, what's typical? I know it may be different for other dietitians, but what's it look like for you in your practice? Is it weekly, monthly? How often? What's that relationship look like for someone just getting started? Yeah, I mean, if you have a chronic condition and your symptoms are not well managed, you know, in the beginning, I might see you, you know, I'll see you the first time, obviously. And then a follow-up period would probably be pretty quick within like two to three weeks. Because when we kind of start a diet, I really – like your body will give you feedback very quickly when you eat, right? Like there's a maximum 72-hour turnaround like with like food going in and food going out and with IBD soften much faster. You'll have a really good sense after two weeks whether the changes we recommended are working well for you. And I don't like to go too long because if it's not working well for you, if you're having trouble with the diet, I don't want to wait four months to see you again. And then after two weeks, you realize that it wasn't working. And so you've been just on your own flailing for all that time. So I like to kind of get like quick feedback within the first two or three weeks. What's working well? What's not working? What are we learning about you? How do we adjust our recommendations? Or do we need to scrap the entire plan because it's just not the right plan for you and try something different? Or, you know, I feel good, but it's not sustainable. It's too much work. Like, we're troubleshooting, right? And so I'll try to get that quick feedback, you know, within the first two weeks, maximum three weeks. And then we know we might meet a, like a couple times, one or two more times. But again, with symptom management and, and diet stuff, there's a lot of quick feedback that your body gives you. And so as we're trying to get symptoms well controlled or get a good routine going, we might meet a couple times within like every two weeks or so. And then once you're kind of in a good place, you may kind of go off and do your thing. And then you might check back with me. You're just like, you know what? I'd love to check back in about three months, see how I'm doing. Or you'll be doing great and maybe you'll have a setback or a flare-up. Or maybe you become pregnant and all of a sudden, like, your nutritional needs are just changing and you're, or you have to go off a medication or, you know, something changes in your life and you want to really check back in because, oh, like, things are not where we left them. And so then I might see you once or twice a year or I might not see you for a year and then next year or in two years you come back. And so, you know, pe- we maintain a relationship and then I, I'm always a resource. I'm always available and um, to, to consult on things, or I want to run this idea by you, or is this supplement okay for me to take tomorrow? Like, you know, you don't even need an appointment for that. You can just message me. Right. And so, you know, we have a relationship, right? Like I'm your, I'm team you, (laughs) right? Like helping support you on your nutrition IBD journey. I love that. Team you. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm curious to know as the medical community is physicians are starting to recognize more that the diet does play a role as opposed to I got diagnosed probably well my first symptoms were 20 years ago I didn't get diagnosed right away but when I did start seeing gastroenterologists the the common phrase I heard was a diet does not matter 
Are you starting to see that change? And do they, are you finding, is there a collaboration yet? Do you ever work with the GIs or do they not care? <laughs> are yeah. they starting to care? <laughs> so yeah. So first of all, my experience is the same as yours. So I started practicing 13 years ago and I started practicing in a GI practice. So I was hired by a gastroenterologist. And so he obviously recognized that nutrition mattered a lot, um, but he was one doctor, right? And so there were other doctors or I'd have patients come from outside and they would come see me and say, you know, um, I want to talk to you about diet. My doctor says that diet doesn't matter, but like I know I feel differently with different foods. And so like, you know, I would echo your experience that 13 years ago when I started, I heard the same thing a lot from patients. I will tell you that I don't hear that anymore at all. So I now work in a larger group practice. So I work with 20 gastroenterologists in a in a large Manhattan GI practice. Um, you know, they all care for patients with inflammatory, inflammatory bowel disease. Three of our physicians are particularly specialized in IBD. Um, and I get a lot of referrals also from outside physicians for IBD. And so, um, you know, I don't hear that anymore um, at all from patients. And so there has been a 180 degree shift in terms of doctors acknowledging, recognizing, embracing the role of nutrition. And I think a lot of that does have to do with the fact that there's finally some data, like some good quality published data that diet does matter, um, both in terms of, you know, potentially increasing the risk of developing IBD, certain dietary patterns, as well as being an adjunctive therapy to help medications work better. And so I don't hear that anymore. That's exciting. That's really exciting to hear that because I think, I know for me personally, it's just as you kind of mentioned when the you know, your patients come in and it's like they recognize that food does matter. That's how I felt for so many years is it's like I I recognize like I'm living it. I I feel the difference. I know there's a difference. I know food plays a role. So how do I navigate it? <laughs> and, yeah. at that, and at that point, I was just left to Google. Luckily, we had Google, <laughs> but it was tricky. Uh, getting the advice of a nutritionist, a dietitian would have would have served me well, <laughs> had I gone that route early on. So speaking of nutritional needs, in your book, you noted that studies suggest that up to 30% of non-hospitalized patients with IBD may be malnourished. So they're obviously not getting the nutritional needs. And that's even when they don't show signs of inadequate calorie intake or protein, low body weight, etc. So tell me, what are some of the signs that you look for? Uh, because malnourishment and IBD is huge. So what is it you look for in your practice to, to know whether or not a patient is getting the nutrients that they need in their diet? Right. So I think the important, like the most important thing to understand about malnutrition is you can have like a high body weight and still be malnourished. And so I think like historically, you know, this idea that malnutrition means that you're extremely thin, underweight, emaciated, you know, and that is malnutrition. Malnutrition means poor nutrition. And so you can have a high body weight and still not be getting enough, you know, zinc or iron or vitamin D, right? And, and that is malnutrition. Um, and so, or you could be maintaining your current weight. You haven't lost any weight, but your entire diet is, you know, rice and, you know, bread and crackers because you're like, you're afraid to eat anything that has fat or fiber or so you're basically eating not enough protein, even though you're getting calories in your diet to maintain your weight. And then your doctor be like, well, you're not losing weight. You must not be malnourished. But then I look at what you actually eat and I'm like, well, where's your protein coming from? Do you have any vitamins? Like I've seen patients you know, many patients, like not many, many, but like more than I ever thought I would see who have literal scurvy, like vitamin C deficiency. I mean, I scurvy, I heard about that as like a kid when I heard about like pirates on the sea who don't like, you know, who don't get any fresh fruits or vegetables for a month. I have seen patients with IBD who literally have vitamin C deficiencies. And that is malnutrition, regardless of whether you've lost weight or whether you're thin or not thin. Um, and so, you know, when I'm meeting with a patient, I don't go by weight alone or by weight loss alone and just say, yes, you're probably malnourished or no, you're not, or by body mass index. I take a detailed history of what you typically eat in a day. Like day, like meal by meal, what are the three types of breakfast you have? Do you snack? What kind of things? What brand of bar? Do you have a cereal? I look to see if your cereal is fortified with vitamins and minerals. Like 
I mean, I've had patients who eat so little that like they're basically living off of rice checks. I will find out how much rice checks they eat per day and calculate what percentage of which vitamins I think that they're getting so I know what to test for. I'm like, well, if they're eating three cups of rice checks a day, they're meeting this need, but they're probably deficient in that. And usually I'm right. And so, you know, I mean, I take a very detailed diet history. All of our dietitians do. And we really understand where are the gaps, not just calorie-wise, obviously protein-wise, also just like vitamin and mineral wise, and we compare that against your anatomy. If you've had resections or if, if I know where you have inflammation, I also know what absorption, this goes back to the map of the GI tract. I know what things you might be malabsorbing even if you're eating enough of them. And I will also check your blood for those. And so, you know, it's really a very detailed, specific, rigorous assessment nutritionally what is going in? What do I predict you might not be absorbing even when it is going in? Um, and what's coming out if there's a lot of blood loss, right? Then I have to worry about iron no matter how much you're eating. And so what's going in, what's going out, where the inflammation or the resections may be and how that will affect nutrition. And so, you know, malnutrition needs to be assessed very vigorously and really rigorously um, because it is so prevalent. And when you look for it, you will find it. I believe it. There's so much detail in that. And it's interesting because I've of, I've often worried for years I'm not getting the nutrients I need. And that's something that you go to a doctor's office, you go to your gastroenterologist, at least for me, and they never they never talk about malnourishment. If you look kind of as you're saying, if you look like you look healthy, you're at the right weight, it's not even a question. You just get your yeah. regular blood panel and and that's it. So right. it's it's shocking right. to think of like how much we could be missing because nobody's yeah. going into that detail the way that you yeah. guys would be. Yeah. So a while back, I collaborated with three of the more specialized IBD doctors in our practice, and we actually developed an IBD-specific blood panel that checked a lot of the micronutrients that are not standard. So we're looking at like zinc, B6, you know, copper, selenium, like we're looking at all of it. And much more recently, um, the IBD specialized physicians have started implementing just across the board malnutrition screeners, like a three or four question screener when they're doing their routine IBD assessments. And anyone who scores a certain way on the screener is now getting the full blood panel so we can really catch malnutrition um, more proactively. And so it's something that is very much on our radar screen. And that's really the benefit of working in a practice where you have physicians and dietitians collaborating so closely. It's so much more on their radar screen. And we have the ability to get labs, whereas a lot of dietitians on their own can't order blood work. Um, and so even if we suspect you have to call someone, the doctor doesn't call you back and like, well, who are you? Why are you asking me to draw blood? I don't know you. I mean, when you have a very trusting and collaborative collaborative relationship with the physician and the dietitian, I mean, patients don't fall through the cracks. That's actually really exciting progress to to kind of hear about that happening and to just to hear that we're not slipping through the cracks as much anymore. Is it becoming more commonplace, do you think, for dietitians to collaborate with gastroenterologists or different, you know, different other type of physicians? Or is that still in its early kind of still trying to gain that traction? We're still trying to gain the traction. I mean, there's a lot of talk. You know, I'd say a lot of the push for it is actually coming from um, like the IBS model and like the functional GI disorders model because a lot of the research into what they're calling integrated care, which is different than integrative care, um, integrated care meaning that, you know, we're seeing now in studies that patients with IBS and similar functional issues get much better outcomes when they have access to not just the GI doctor, but also the, the allied providers, dietitians, GI psychologists, pelvic floor physical therapists, you know, all those kind of other providers that can provide the complementary care. Um, and so, you know, the push is, I think, coming in the GI world from that area. Um, it's still, I think, very much in its infancy. And as this conversation, I think, really illustrates, it's not just IBS patients, you know, who benefit from having, you know, a GI doctor and a dietitian collaborate. My patients with acid reflux benefit. My patients with inflammatory bowel disease benefit. My patients with you know, um, obviously all the IBS type of disorders, my patients with, you know, lactose intolerance and fructose intolerance and sucrose intolerance, like they all benefit. 
um, because there's a dietary component to probably 85% of the GI conditions that the physicians in our practice handle. Um, there's a few conditions that really don't have much of a dietary management component, but you know, you could argue that the vast majority of GI patients, there's a food management component to their problem. Well, hopefully we'll get there to the day when when we truly have integrated medicine and dietitians are a part of that conversation. I know as a patient, I I get frustrated because I feel like my health care is so compartmentalized and I see my gastroenterologist and he just he just looks at the intestines and then I see my primary care physician and and She's doing, depending on how good of a one you have, (laughs) they may or may not be looking at everything. I've had both good and bad, but it seems like there's no one really other than myself looking at the whole picture of my health. So maybe one day we'll get to a point where the integrated medicine really is the norm and dietitians and nutrition is actually part of that conversation from the beginning. I would love to see that. Definitely from your mouth to God's ears. So what other type of, you mentioned you have blood tests that you can use in your practice to help identify malnourishment. Um, Obviously, you're talking with your patients, getting them to write down what they're eating, detailed analysis of what they're taking in. What other type of tools do you use in your practice to help establish where someone is at and where they can go with food and nutrition? Yeah, I mean, look, obviously, like the physicians are checking calprotectin levels so we can get an objective measure as far as is the inflammation improving or not. But I mean, really clinical symptom monitoring is the hallmark of whether I know that I'm making a difference or our work is making a difference, right? Like, how do you feel? How are your symptoms? Again, that is the most rapid direct feedback we get when we implement a dietary intervention. You know, within two weeks of adding that supplement or changing that diet or eating that breakfast or doing whatever we decided, is is the pain better? Is the diarrhea better? Are you having less gas? Like, you know, do you, are, are there like sort of these very observable, tangible markers of improvement? Because ultimately my job is nutrition and my job is quality of life, right? Like, it's wonderful that your calprotectin is normal now. That's great. But if you are still miserable and you feel terrible, then my job is not done. Even though the medicine is quote unquote working, like you're not feeling well. And so I still have work to do, right? Like a lot of our patients with IBD have comorbidities. Like a lot of patients with inflammatory bowel disease develop SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And when they're super, super symptomatic, Everyone just assumes, well, it's because of your IBD. But what happens in a patient that's so symptomatic, so symptomatic, and then we check your Calpro and it's normal. Well, now we have to actually think outside the box. Okay, well, maybe we can't blame the IBD for this. What could have happened along the way? Did you develop IBS as a comorbidity? Did you develop SIBO as a comorbidity? Like, how do we want to manage that? Like, should I be trying, you know, should I be breath testing you for SIBO? Should I be trying more IBS-y type of interventions? Like, you know, where do we go from here? And so again, having access to your records, because I work with your GI doctor, I can look and see what your CalPro is. I don't have to wait six weeks to get your doctor to call me back and tell me. And so it just makes these questions a lot faster and easier to answer. People aren't languishing for like a really long time. Um, and we can be really responsive to changes on the ground. So it's exciting. Yeah. That's very exciting. Do you usually encourage your your patients, do you have them keep food journals and kind of detail every day or is it more just kind of they'll check in, it's only a couple weeks and they can kind of check in and just verbally? Not necessarily, yeah. I mean, I I do use food journals, but like not as much as you might think. Um, You know, I typically will just have somebody tell me like a typical day, like and walk me through like, you know, what does a typical work day look like for you? And here are the three types of breakfast that you typically rotate. People tend to be very habitual with breakfast and lunch, especially when they're still working. Um, dinner is a little bit of uh, more all over the place, snacks sometimes too, but weekends can be a little bit more all over the place. But, you know, I think getting a general habitual diet like recall and a general symptom recall, like how many times a day on average are you going to the bathroom? Like when is it happening? What does it look like? Like I can usually get that without a really detailed food and symptom journal. I use those journals much more for people who don't have a diagnosis or I'm trying to figure out what's wrong with them. Um, Mostly with IBD, they've already come to me with a diagnosis. I'm rarely the person that's like, oh, I think you could have IBD. Like, let's go check that out. Like, usually that's already been diagnosed by the time they get to me. 
Um, and so I'm not really looking for like mystery clue stuff. Like I'm, you know, I'm getting a pretty good sense from the 24 hour diet recall. That makes sense. Makes perfect sense. So one of the things I noted in your book is that you actually have you have a quiz at the beginning of the book that kind of helps guide patients, not just IBD. I mean, anyone with digestive issues or can can read the book. <laughs> but tell me a little bit about that quiz and how it helps uh, someone who's about to read the book or just in that process. Right. So the way that I write my books is they're not meant to be read cover to cover. You know, every chapter corresponds to a medical diagnosis. And so the idea is you're having a symptom. And for regular, the symptom is diarrhea or constipation or some combination. Um, And uh, the quiz is intended to help navigate you to the chapter or chapters in the book that sound the most like why you have diarrhea or constipation. And so I co-developed this quiz with one of my gastroenterologist colleagues And the types of questions I included in the quiz are kind of these very differentiating questions that would, that the kinds of things we would ask you if you were our patient. If you were coming in, you said, I have diarrhea, Um, I need to narrow down. We don't have that much time together. I need to kind of develop a hypothesis pretty quickly of why I think this could be. So I'm asking you a bunch of questions around like the nature of your symptoms, when they hit, the freak, like what the poop looks like, what's your experience, like how different foods like tend to react with your symptoms and using these very differentiating questions to be like, oh, well, if you had IBD, like these types of foods would probably bother you. Whereas if you didn't, these would be fine. And so I try to kind of create a very short list of differentiating questions that would help kind of make a symptom pattern emerge that would resemble, you know, one or two of the chapters. And then you get to read the chapter and see like, does that sound like me? Does that not? I think someone with IBD who obviously already has a diagnosis may not necessarily need to do the quiz. They could probably flip ahead to that chapter. And so, you know, in the book, I have chapters for IBS, for IBD, for, you know, different types of, um, you know, sugar malabsorption issues, for histamine intolerance, for, you know, all these different causes for constipation. And depending if you already have a diagnosis of one of those things or not, you may find the quiz really helpful. You may find the quiz not necessary. You just want to flip ahead to the chapter that you carry the diagnosis for. And so, you know, the book is really meant to be um, something that you can individualize for what your issues are. It's like a survival guide. <laughs> you can just flip a, flip around a, whatever you need in that moment. <laughs> Yes, that's the, that's the idea. And it's a reference book, right? Because mm-hmm. things change. And like I said, there can be sort of these comorbidities that you have IBD, but maybe your IBD is in remission right now and you're starting to get new symptoms that seem not to be the IBD. You can take the quiz, you know, and maybe that would take you to like the SIBO chapter or the IBS chapter or, you know, or the pelvic floor dysfunction chapter. And so, you know, it, it can be a, a resource because things change, right? There's, you know, when I have IBD patients, I'm thinking about just like a handful in my head they have issues, like they have multiple chapters. They're not just the IBD chapter. Like I have a lot of IBD patients with pelvic floor issues. I have a lot of IBD patients with SIBO, um, bile acid, diarrhea, like all sorts of stuff that um, I also cover in the book. And I love that you included sample menus in there too. There's sample menus. There's, we mentioned, we talked about fiber a little bit earlier. There's a ton of information on fiber. I know as a patient, I've heard one of my gastroenterologists just Every other word out of her mouth was fiber, 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 but there was no conversation about the types of fiber, the types of food, um, you know, and so when you get the wrong fiber, it can be scary of like, I've had a bad experience with fiber, but you go into so much detail about different types of fiber, why fiber might work in different uh, types of foods that would be best in certain situations. So there's so much information in there. It's, It's a wonderful reference. Thank you. Yeah. Fiber is not a monolith. Fiber, there's a lot of detail and a lot of specificity around fiber and whether it's very fermentable or not, whether it's soluble or insoluble, and also the particle size. We talk a lot about particle size of fiber, especially with IBD, when there is stricturing or history of obstructions because, you know, you know, insoluble fiber roughage like spinach or kale or whatever or nuts could be disastrous if you have a history of obstruction or, you know, some stricturing. But if you throw it in a blender and and make it a smoothie, like 
if it fits through a straw, it's not going to obstruct you. And so there's also this fear of, oh, I can't eat any greens or so like, you know, there's too much fiber in them. But it's really the particle size of the fiber, the physical particle size of the fiber that is going to make it or break it for you. And so to not unnecessarily restrict certain nutrient-rich anti-inflammatory foods just because you're afraid that on paper they have a lot of fiber or even the type of fiber is in the category that is the dangerous type for you. There's so many nuances with fiber that can, you know, help you if you understand them. It can help prevent unnecessary restriction, but also unnecessary pain and suffering. <laughs> you made fiber less scary after I read through the whole thing. I was like, okay, yeah. I, I could, I can do some fiber. <laughs> Good, I'm so glad. <laughs> so, talk to me about your two books. You have the Bloated Belly Whisperer and Regular. Do they play off of each other? Do they kind of build upon or just two? two separate ones. Talk to me about both um, and how someone could use both. Yeah. So Bloated Belly Whisper was my, it was my first book. And it was really to talk about a symptom that doesn't have a diagnosis, right? So bloating is a symptom. It's not like a medical condition. And most people who have bloating don't even know where to start. They have no idea why. And so that book was really meant to help people understand what is the underlying cause of a symptom. Even before I published that book, it became very clear to me that there were huge gaps, right? Because then there were people who would like message me when I was like, oh, I have this book coming out, get my book. And they'd message, oh, do you cover IBD? Oh, do you cover IBS? And I'm like, ish, (laughs) right? Like, you know, it covers bloating as a symptom, which you may have if you have IBS, but it doesn't actually talk about how to manage IBS in all of its entirety, not just the bloating, but also the diarrhea or the constipation or the pain. Um, And if you have IBD, like it doesn't really talk about inflammation and particle size, whatever. It was very specific and narrow, which for a certain person was all they needed. And for some people, it was just part of the puzzle. So it kind of became really clear to me very soon that like there was a lot of missing information. Like some patients wouldn't fully benefit from the bloated belly whisperer. um, And there was an opportunity to really kind of square in on bowel irregularity and the actual medical conditions that underlie it. And so there's some overlap. There are some conditions that I talk about in both books. So SIBO appears in both books. Celiac disease appears in both books. Um, constipation and high stool burden and pelvic floor dysfunction appear in both books, Uh, lactose intolerance and fructose. But then there's like a whole lot of stuff that doesn't appear in both books, like specifically IBS, both types of IBS, IBD, histamine intolerance, sucrose intolerance. Um, And so there's a lot of stuff in regular and and also I think uh, pancreatic insufficiency um, and bile acid diarrhea are in regular. They're not in the bloated belly. So there's like a some overlap, but like regular really has a lot of very new content and very deep specific content to medical conditions that bloated belly whisperer doesn't have for all of the conditions. So what I'm hearing is that both books are necessary. <laughs> yes, they are. They yeah, they're both they're you know they're both my babies. Like I can't you know they're 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 both potentially relevant for different people or even for the same person depending on who you are. Mm-hmm. And regular came out this month, correct? It was just released this month in April (laughs) last week. So it is hot off the press. So people who are listening, um, where is it available? How can they find regular? And if they want to get both books, regular and the bloated belly whisperer. Yeah, so both books are available pretty much everywhere books are sold. They both have, you know, major publishers, and so they're not going to be hard to find. Um, you know, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your independent bookstore, um, they should be pretty easy to find. Um, so, yeah. Everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. Everywhere I'll, you buy books. I'll put the links. Um, I'll include your website, too. I know they're um, they're up there, so I'll, I'll put the links in the show notes for everyone to find easily. Thank you. What is the... In all of your experience um, with nutrition and writing the books and being a dietitian, what's the biggest message or piece of advice that you would share with our IBD listeners? So I would say, you know, the biggest piece of advice that I give to people is be so careful about internet information and internet advice. You know, internet advice, like the internet, we all know it's not edited, (laughs) it's not filtered. You know, the people who take the time to post things online are people who have a really strong point of view about a specific thing. 
And usually that specific thing is based on their own personal experience. And and I'm not even talking about like like people who are grifty and fraudulent and just trying to get your money. I'm talking about well-meaning people who really want to help. Their experience is not your experience. And as you know, you could have the same exact diagnosis on paper and your IBD could even affect the same exact part of the bowel. And that doesn't mean that what worked for them is going to work for you. Um, and, you know, there's also a lot of belief around, you know, GI stuff and food stuff that isn't necessarily evidence-based. Like when you said like a lot of versions of anti-inflammatory diets, I mean, there's a lot of people online that are being like coconut oil is super anti-inflammatory. Well, you know what? The science doesn't actually support that, right? And so, you know, you'll also read things about inflammation or anti-inflammatory diets. So say seed oils are inflammatory or nightshades are, are, are pro-inflammatory. And it's like, you know, you could get a lot of really unscientific information based on people on the internet who seem credible, who may even have letters after their name that would suggest credibility, that are not using evidence-based stuff. And they're also just offering one size fits all or extrapolating from their data point of me to you. And so I think it's so important for people with any health issue, but especially chronic GI issues, is to recognize that the only expert of your body is you and your body. Your body's reactions and your body's responses are the Bible. And my job isn't to tell you, like, this is what your body needs. My job is to listen to your body and what you tell me happens when you eat that so I can decipher the clues that your body is throwing off and come up with the most healthy, anti-inflammatory, tolerable version of a healthy diet that your body is asking for. And that is very different than that person on Instagram or, you know, the, you know, the functional provider who's selling the 10, you know, the 10 product supplement regimen, one size fits all, like that may not be relevant for you. That may not be science-based. Like, and so it can be so tempting and attractive to just somebody who's like really definitive to say like, this is it. This is the plan. This is the right diet. This is the supplement you need to take. Like, that's what we all want. We just, just tell me what to do to make this better. Like it's so attractive and I so get the appeal, but it's also not necessarily the path to trueness. And sometimes people make themselves so ill because they think that they should eat this way, or I should feel better on this supplement, or I should take this, ignoring that their body is screaming, this feels terrible. I can't eat this food. It doesn't feel good, but it's anti-inflammatory and I want to follow an anti-inflammatory diet. So I just need to suffer through it until my inflammation gets better and then it'll be okay. And then it'll be worth it. Your body is the expert. We have to respect that and, and honor it and not let the internet be the end all be all of our health information. I think that's great advice. And I think I think a lot of us with IBD, we've especially if we've had it a while, we've learned to kind of listen to our bodies. But um, I know I've probably taken a few wrong turns in my <laughs> in my nutrition journey over the years, because just as you say, the Internet can be enticing. You know, you read one person's story. I've, I've looked at so many different stories and tried so many different things throughout my journey. It was like trying to figure out what can I take from that? What worked for me? What didn't? And it was very confusing process. And like I said earlier, I should have had a dietitian to help me through the whole thing. <laughs> so you are, you are based in New York. Your practice is in New York. Do you ever see patients online? Is that an option for people who are listening? Is that? Yeah. I avenue? mean, ever since COVID, I'd say most of my patients are telehealth. Even the ones that live in New York don't even want to come in anymore. Everyone just wants to do telehealth. So we do do telehealth. You know, the laws by state vary. And so there's like 20-something states where I'm allowed to practice telehealth and another 20-something states that have exclusive licensure that I would not be allowed to see patients in. And so, you know, when you call the office and you tell them where you live, they'll let you know, you know, whether or not uh, our dietitians can see you. And if someone is interested in that, how would they contact you or your practice? Is that a separate website? Yeah. So um, I work for um, New York Gastroenterology Associates, um, and they are in New York City, and we have multiple locations. Um, our website is, oh gosh, our website is gastroenterologistnewyork.com. Um, and there's a main phone number for all of our locations, for all of our dietitians. There's also a text number on the website that you can text to request um, an appointment or a callback. 
Perfect. I'll put that in the show notes as well so that everything is easily findable. So we covered a lot today. Is there anything that we didn't touch on that you wanted to share with the community, either about um, nutrition, the practice, your books, anything, any last message that you want to share? Oh, gosh. I mean, you know, I think we covered a lot of it. I think, you know, I just urge people to um, to really tune into themselves, to be honest and and kind to themselves about where they are to realize that you don't have to be perfect to make progress. Like we said earlier, some people may just need to get through the day and it's not realistic for them to follow like this aspirational, like perfect home cooked every meal diet. Like, and just, if you can't do that, like that's okay. There's so many paths to good health. There's so many different versions of a healthy diet and an adequate diet. And I think that we put so much pressure on ourselves and a lot of like self-flagellation and like, you know, it's my fault I did this to myself because I ate all these foods or like, you know, the reason I'm so sick is because I'm not cooking all my own meals because I just don't have the time. And like enough of that, like you know, it just enough of that. Like, A, it's not true. And um, and B, like it's not helpful, <laughs> right? Like, you know, we're all doing the best we can and it's about progress, not perfection. And, you know, even if you can do – you know, 20%, you know, less, you know, pro-inflammatory stuff. If we can swap out the brand of, you know, your almond milk or your, you know, whatever for a different brand that doesn't have like these food additives, like it doesn't mean you have to like milk your own almonds. You know what I mean? Like, and so I think that there's so many like low hanging fruit things we can do to just make progress and to move the needle. Um, and that we need to stop putting so much pressure on ourselves to just be perfect. Diet matters. And sometimes you could also be following the most perfect diet and still have issues. And that's also the nature of autoimmune disease. Like mm -hmm. many times diet helps and sometimes it doesn't. And it's not your fault. <laughs> that's a wonderful message. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you and learning more about your books and your practice and just how nutrition and dietitians can help with an IBD journey. So thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. It was so fun. Thank you for listening. If you love these interviews and want to support the podcast, visit my website at Crohn'sFitnessFood.com and click on the Buy Me a Coffee link to show some love or visit my featured products page to shop the products and companies that I love and support. If you have an IBD story that you want to share, send me an email at Crohn'sFitnessFood at gmail.com or fill out the form on my website, Crohn'sFitnessFood.com. And always remember, be strong, be grateful, and keep going.